Hey guys, this is Scotty here. Just wanted to give you all a heads up that there's some weird audio things happening in this episode. I'm not sure what the issue was, if it was a not great Zoom connection or if there was something up with my microphone. It's definitely clearly on my end of the conversation. But anyway, I hope you guys still listen. This was a really fun, uh, kind of freewheeling, loose conversation with one of my best friends in the world. And it's kind of a nice way to close out the a weirdest thing era of the weirdest thing podcast so anyway uh again sorry for the weird audio stuff but enjoy Hello, welcome back to A Weirdest Thing Podcast. I think this is the last official of the A Weirdest Thing before Amelia gets back. And I'm super happy today. I have one of my absolute best friends in the world on the show. Um, This is Mandy Connor. So Mandy, hi. Hi! I am very excited to be here. I have literally, when you asked me to do the podcast, I had no chill about it. I was trying to be (laughs) chill about it, but there was no chill happening behind the scenes. (laughs) Yeah. And for the rest of the show, I would like for you to refer to me as the poor man's Amelia. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say you were, you were kind of my Amelia, like before Amelia. (laughs) So you're like my other Amelia. Like if I'm podcast cheating on Amelia, you are the other one. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah, so we've known each other now. Fuck like 18 years oh that bums me out (laughs) (laughs) i know it's just like bring the mood fucking down yeah no we met in uh in boston you're 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 my bestie from boston and uh i was trying to remember like how we met and i actually don't even remember officially meeting you I don't remember the first time we met. Was it BU prom? Was it that night? I mean, I feel like I probably met most of the people. I feel like I met most of the people in the film group at that time. And I was I was at BU for journalism, which I'm one hundred percent not in that industry at all. But glad <laughs> I got that degree. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where I met some of my like best longest friends, and you were my best best friend while we were at BU, which is awesome. Yeah. So my memory, you were there for journalism. I was there for screenwriting, obviously. My memory of the first time I saw you, I think was, it was this event that we called the Comprom. It was the School of Communications. It was like an introductory dance slash hangout <laughs> yeah it was um it was within the first two weeks i think of this of our very first semester yeah the only reason i went is because i knew there would be drink tickets so yeah, <laughs> yeah. well i remember like i didn't know anybody at the time and then i got on the the bus because it was up in like cambridge or somewhere yeah it was um, cambridge yes yeah, that's right. And I got on the bus with our friend Ellen, and that was like the first time I ever talked to her. Oh and my then, god, that had to be monumental. Yeah, <laughs> well, because it was if and if anyone knows uh, our friend Ellen, she is a talker. So I think it was mostly her talking and me, kind of like, uh huh, uh huh, like trying to keep up. <laughs> um, but then we we got to the. It was you said it was the Hyatt. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I remember, like, by the end of that night, we were all just like friends it was Um, like it was so weird because like I'm an only child I've always very shy and it's not I haven't had one of those experiences before so to be in a room where you we all made best friends that night and it wasn't a small group either I mean how many 
how many people would you say were in like our friend group from that? I mean, like the core group was like eight to 10, probably. Yep. It was mostly film people. And then you were the journalism person. And I feel like we had maybe a couple other people from other. It was it was really almost all film people. It was totally. Yeah. But there was like a shit ton of us and we just formed like an immediate bond, immediate mm-hmm. friendship. But then you and I were super extra about it because we realized we both <laughs> loved horror. <laughs> right. Well, my memory, like I, my memory of you at the comprom was walking by and seeing you and like, you're absolutely gorgeous. And oh, you were very Jersey with your like dyed platinum you. blonde hair. <laughs> And I'm very, like, awkward New Mexico. (laughs) Um, And I just remember walking by and being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't talk to that girl. You know, she's probably a Rockefeller or something. Yeah, and little Um, did you know that she was real fucking weird. (laughs) Yeah, no, then I walked by and you were talking to our friend Dave. And I don't remember exactly what the conversation was. I just remember anal sex was part of it and you (laughs) saying the word fuck a lot. And I was like, okay, she seems cool. (laughs) She's one of us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, the good old days. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then, yeah, like you said, we both, you were like my co-horror fan. So, like, we just immediately bonded over Stephen King. So I will say one of my favorite, favorite pieces that I ever wrote in journalism school was the piece I wrote about you. Right. And it was because it was so, it was such a personal piece, but also it was just really fun to profile you because you're one of my like most like unique eccentric like you you have this strong character about you and it's so much fun to write about wow, you thank so, you so like remains one of my favorite pieces that i've ever written god i haven't read that in years but that yeah that was a fun a fun no, little no. piece <laughs> i think i was like using it as like my bio for a while uh when I was submitting scripts to things but yeah we we bonded over we bonded over horror we bonded over stephen king uh you were like probably the only person i've ever met who was like as into stephen king as i am and you even now like you have your stephen king book club totally yes we do we have i have stephen king book club here in boston which is um there's four of us and we realized we've had stephen king book club consistently going for six years now and we Mm -hmm. were like i mean we read a new stephen king book you know we're working our way through the entire bibliography of stephen king and we've like barely scratch the surface and i will say like we're fast readers and we just can't mm-hmm. keep up with that asshole like jesus yeah. christ <laughs> <laughs> like we finished one book and he's got like four more on pre-order right <laughs> yeah, yeah so, it is amazing that you've been doing that book club for six years and you haven't even gotten through everything that's written totally i still propose that you and i get a stephen king best friend tattoo like i'm i'm gonna keep hounding yeah. you about because I feel like it needs to happen. Yeah, we should do that. I do have my Stephen King tattoo on my... I don't know if I've ever shown it to you. Um, you probably can't see it. I know it. that one. Uh, I know that one. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's the uh, the quote... Um, uh, now I'm forgetting the quote. What was the quote? It's the tale, not he tells it. <laughs> Got words on my body that I don't even know what they are. You know what my favorite line of a Stephen King book? It's from The Gunslinger. And it's, there are other mm. worlds than these. And that is so that there's... I think that's our that's our friendship tattoo right there. Like, that's our friendship tattoo, Scotty. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm I'm all about it. <laughs> <laughs> it only took us 18 years to get a friendship tattoo. Nailed <laughs> it. Nailed it. Yeah. No, but yeah, we bonded over horror. I also remember bonding over like you and I. I feel like we're like the more adventurous 
of our group not to like talk shit about anyone else but we were always like willing to try like a new place to go get shit faced so that was always fun totally. yes. yeah <laughs> hung out with you and your dad and his boyfriend in jersey yeah that was fun my dad still loves it so much his new dad asks about you like all the time oh really <laughs> well tell him yeah. hi for me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was uh and then i always i i do have to tell this story i always do like to take credit for your, you and your husband um, 100%. yeah because i remember you dated a couple dudes when we were in boston and they were like pretty much total dill holes from what i remember yeah 100 um, suck right yeah <laughs> um I, I remember just being like thoroughly unimpressed but then uh it was after we graduated i think i was living in la at the time you called me and you told me you're like i met this guy and he's like i don't know he's not really my type he's in the he's like in a metal band and he's like covered in tattoos and blah, blah, yeah, he was blah. a hot dirt bag which i have yeah. since realized <laughs> i too am trash and i just didn't know at the time i wasn't ready to like accept the fact that i too am garbage and so this was like, cool it's cool like hot garbage is your it's your vibe <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I remember. I remember. Yeah, you were like, oh, he's not really my type. I was like, well, do you like him? And you were like, yeah, oh, yeah, he's like super funny. We have, we like get along really well. I, I think you guys like worked next to each other. Was that the story? Like, yeah, I worked upstairs from him in Kenmore Square. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I was like, are you attracted to me? You're like, oh, yeah, he's like super cute. And I was like, well, Mandy, your type kind of sucks. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> give him a shot. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you know, my type really does kind of suck. Maybe I will give him a shot. And here we are, however many years later. I mean, how long have you guys been together, you and Brian? We've been together for 14 years, married for going on 12, which is it's a lot of years. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it made me realize you were the one who made me realize that hot garbage is my type. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, as as a like charter member of the hot garbage club myself, I, I appreciate that. The other weird thing about your husband, I just also have to mention is he's literally, I think, a half hour younger than me. He is. You guys, that is such an amazing thing. When we figured that out, that not only were you born same year, same day, but you guys were born within 30 minutes of each other. Mm -hmm. That fucking blows my mind. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, like, two of my ultimate favorite people in the world, my husband, my best friend, were born at the exact same time and the exact same day. I mean... Yeah, like it's it's just meant to be, you know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it definitely felt it definitely felt like oh oh there's there's something there. And I remember you guys came and visited. Me. I think that was the first time I met Brian. You guys came and visited me in New Mexico, and I was right away like because uh, yeah, I'd met a couple of the other dudes. I think briefly that you had dated, and like I said, not impressed. And yeah. You showed up with Brian, and I was like, oh yeah, I like this guy immediately, like <laughs> immediate immediate fan. So and now you've got a little mini me. We have a trash bag of garbage that is in our likeness, and she's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little, a little pile of garbage. She's she's the best. <laughs> and uh, you guys are still living in the Boston area, and yeah. like you said, uh, you were there to study journalism. You had gone to like Rutgers, I think, before, right? Yeah, I, I went to Rutgers. That was your undergrad. undergrad. Yep. And then I came up to BU for grad school because I was just literally not ready to face like the real world. So I was like, oh, keep this fucking education train going. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Journalism sounds fun. 
so yeah, went into journalism and literally did nothing with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, still living in the Boston. Yeah, you did in, work in, in the Boston area. You did work in publishing for a while. Right? I did. I did. I guess so. Yeah, I worked in publishing. I worked in marketing. I worked in PR. So like ancillary to journalism, mm-hmm. but like Not. journalism itself. I think I think it was way late in my career that somebody was like, "Oh, you know, journalisms don't make fucking dick." And I was like, "I'm out. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> New industry for me. Thank you." <laughs> So yeah, so I did yeah. like the natural jump when you're getting out of journalism and I became a fucking wedding planner. Yeah. Which is what most people do, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you and you do like high end like weddings, right? Like you, I do some baller ass weddings. Yeah. I mean yeah. you so just like, did a wedding and trash, but I, I am still in my heart trash, <laughs> but I give off the air of injury. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you just did like a wedding in Aspen, right? Did we did a wedding in Aspen? Yeah, we do we do some really high-end, gorgeous luxury weddings. So yes. So, awesome. so I clean I clean up okay is what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you're looking for a wedding planner who's gonna just like rock your shit, uh look up uh Hummingbird Bridal on Instagram and all the other interwebs. So let's talk about horror a little bit. So I'm curious because we've never actually like we're both horror fans. We're both Stephen King fans. Over the years, I've really like thought about what horror like means to me and what I'm looking for in horror. But I've never actually like talked to you about what it is for you. So like, yeah. just like what 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 is the draw? What is the attraction? So for horror, I love I love the emotion behind horror. I appreciate so many of the nuances of horror. But there's you know I feel like horror is very personal what Mm -hmm. what terrifies you what affects you it's so personal and when you find something that still affects you in like in a time when like I feel like you know we're all just kind of going through life and like yeah you have happy days you have sad days but when you find something that really fucking rocks your world it stays with you you know Mm -hmm. and when I see really amazing horror when I read really amazing horror that stuff stays with me. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I think about it. I think about movies I've seen like from 20 years ago. I think about a passage of a book, a horror book Mm. that I read ages ago. And that's the shit that stays with me. So Mm. I think it's stuff that just kind of creeps into your DNA and kind of infects you. That's That's the type of horror I look for. I like, this is very snobbish, but I like really high quality horror. You know, I'm not I'm not into the super rubbery slasher films like I'll watch any type of horror movie that's out there just to like see it all. But what what I really love is more the high quality horror, you know, like the elevated horror. Yeah. Yeah. Bougie horror, if you will. Bougie horror. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm kind of snobbish about my horror, but I feel like this brings up like a really good question. What's your personal criteria for horror that you love? For me? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I've gone through different cycles. Like there's so many subgenres within horror Mm -hmm. and like I've gone through different eras like i when i was younger i was very much into the splatterpunks mm-hmm. um like you know john skip creek specter david j scow joran lansdale like those like 80s and 90s punk rock in your face shock value but like kind of with a point and then of course stephen king clive barker was a big thing for me but i also loved hp lovecraft and shirley jackson which are like nothing like any of those other writers so shirley jackson yeah yeah i mean shirley jackson is like as far from splatterpunk as you can get you know so i've thought about this lately and i would say in the last few years since i've really refocused back on like writing fiction i've been like really drawn towards like cosmic horror like the lovecraftian stuff Mm -hmm. But I just attended KillerCon, which is a horror convention in Austin, Texas. 
Yeah. And it's like a real splatter gore kind of bizarro. Like it's like What is uh, Killer Like what what do you guys do there? Is it publishing focused? Is it like kind of yeah. So like so like Stoker I, the way I've been describing it to people is like StokerCon is the big horror convention where they give up the Bram Stoker awards and stuff. They have a lot of panels with writers. It's very writer focused. Mm-hmm. KillerCon is similar but it's smaller and rowdier. Like I would say if StokerCon is like the Sundance mm-hmm. of horror conventions then KillerCon is like the slam dance. Like, cool. like it, it's like uh, still kind of up there, still like super respected, been around a while, but it is definitely like more edgy, more underground, more like, and like I said, it's really like geared towards like what you would call extreme horror now used to be called splatterpunk. Yeah. Um, which is really not what I write typically. I was going to um, say that seems that seems different from what you write, but I I appreciate that you still appreciate it. You know. Yeah, but it was interesting hanging out with all those like splatter punky writers, and they do this this infamous thing every year. It, it was actually something that started with uh, StokerCon or with the World Horror Convention back before StokerCon, um, and it's kind of been picked up by KillerCon that the, they do like the very last night of the uh, convention. It's called the Gross Out Contest. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's like you are given six minutes to write. You have to write a story in, uh, that's six minutes long. You get up and recite it in front of the crowd. And the goal is to be as outrageous, over the top, disgustingly gross as you can be. Is this kind of like uh, the aristocrats, but for horror? I, uh, that's a good way to think about it. I mean, we're not all like riffing on the same idea or anything, but it, but it's the same idea of like, you know, you got six minutes, just be as disgusting over the top <laughs> and be as creative with it as you can be. And I kind of got roped into it. Like my friend who was there, she posted it on Facebook while I was driving out there. She was like, who's going to do the gross out contest with me? And I was like, I'll do it. And I knew what the I had heard of the gross out contest before, but I didn't connect the dots that this was what she was talking about. So then I got there. I was like, so you got six minutes to write this story. I was like, oh, shit, I have to write something. Yeah. So then, you know, we did it. And and the other thing is, like, at the three minute mark, they stop you and they go to the crowd and say, should he continue? Um, And you either get a thumbs up or thumbs down. Wow, and if you're not it, style, shit, that's yeah. so real. And so I was like, my whole goal was like, I want to get some laughs, and I want not to get sat down. Oh my god, it's like, like it's like NPR's. What is it? The Moth meets uh, fucking Splatterpunk, right? Totally, totally. That's okay. that's also a good way to think of it. Yeah, wow, yeah, that's, that's totally so right. Cool. Yeah. And I did it and I told a story and I didn't win. In fact, my friend Bridget, who I mentioned, she got second place. Mine, uh, I had a lot of fun with mine. It was very uh, poop forward, I would say. (laughs) That's my favorite fucking stories are poop forward stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Later offline. (laughs) I did not get sat down. In fact, I got almost unanimous thumbs up when they asked if I should continue. Yeah. And I did hear one of the judges, they had three judges who are all like known kind of splatter punky, splatter gore, extreme horror writers. And one of them is a guy named John Skip, who is one of my all time favorite writers from back in the, you know, back in the splatter punk days of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And I could hear him laughing behind me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I got Skip. That's good. And he actually came up to me afterwards and like went out of his way to tell me he liked my story. So it, long story short, yeah. what was your original question? Your question was my like, original question. <laughs> what's your personal, uh, what's your personal criteria for 
how you judge like good horror. Well, I think for me, and I think I did go through a period where I was really snobby about the kind of extreme horror stuff, um, Mm -hmm. feeling like it was, you know, sort of shock value for the sake. And I've talked about it on this podcast where it's like, I get annoyed by the like, ooh, I'm so edgy. I'm going to shock you with my gross, you know, whatever. You know, I've talked about the fucking the shit of the dead story uh, on here. And it's kind of that thing, but I think the thing it was like the energy and the fact that like everyone was there for the same thing no one's actually trying to like troll anybody else yeah um it's all and it was all in fun and like there's a whole community around it and i think it really kind of like just going to KillerCon kind of opened my eyes up about what horror can be mm-hmm. um i don't think horror has to be scary mm-hmm. i think it can be funny I think it can be super quiet. I think it can be over the top. I think it can be um, very literary. I think it can be very gory. I think it can be all of these things. What I think I'm looking for in good horror is something that sets up the conventions of the real world and then turns them upside down in some interesting way and that can be in a way that creates like a real sense of like dread like lovecraftian dread or it can be like you know startle a laugh out of you kind of thing but it's like i'm looking for that kind of creativity and that kind of energy in person like and and one thing i really i've always loved about horror and i kind of mentioned it on the last episode when i was talking to my friend lauren Poole, is like i'm i'm really kind of allergic to like high art and high class art and stuff Mm -hmm. i've always liked that horror is like by its nature it's very reptile brain it's it's like you can't you can't overthink horror yeah you know it's either it's like good comedy it's either gonna like hit your fucking nerve centers or it's not it's not intellectual it's very personal everybody's experience with horror is so deeply personal right right? so what is it what is it for you that you're looking for you said elevated horror and bougie horror (laughs) sure 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 but you know i actually and i like all different types of horror you know i'm I'm very very open to whatever makes me feel something but this is my definition of how i judge criteria for like good horror for me personally Mm -hmm. but it's whether i can suspend reality enough to put myself in the situation Mm, and that's is when I fucking feel the horror. I can be sitting in my living room. I can be in a movie theater. I can be reading the book. It doesn't matter what the format is, but if I can feel myself in the situation, then I get freaked the fuck out because now I'm I'm in it. I'm immersed. I feel what the character's mm-hmm. feeling. You can say that about any type of entertainment, but truly horror is when I can put myself into the situation. If I'm watching horror, if I'm reading horror, where I'm just like, I don't, I'm not in this situation. Like I can't imagine a situation where I would ever be in that situation like this. Like I would never do the things that the characters are doing. I would never, you know, I just can't relate to the horror. It it loses something for me. Well, that's interesting. Cause like I, you know, my standard definition for horror that I give to students. And I think I mentioned it on here before is that it, to me, it's, it's about the irrational invading a rational space. So it's like chaos being introduced into order. And that creates a certain type of suspense that's different from like the born identity or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about that relatability, I think it is like all of us have lived in a world where we think we know the rules of the world that we live in, but it always feels like a little rickety, like a house of cards, you know. I think we've all lived in that. And so anything that punctures through that, I think in it gets to that reptile brain. Like what you're talking about with the like relatability. It's like, I can enjoy like the born identity or like a good like suspense film or action film, but I never, I never watch like a diehard movie and feel like, oh yeah, I could be John McClane, you know? Yeah. 
but any horror story like it gets past all that and it gets to like you know it's just like the caveman like being afraid of what's on the other side of the fire kind of thing you yep. know like when it works here's an example of like so the witch right one of my mm-hmm. favorite high quality bougie horror movies of the last decade right for me the horror in that movie was not the witch. that was like a, a fun ancillary like you know kind of like side plot the witch itself herself wasn't what's scary what was scary was the fucking isolation right right away from society and the fear of just being out in the wilderness by yourself with your family unprotected you have no protection around you i mean that to me was the scariest part of that movie you know Mm -hmm. yeah because the witch using the witch is a way into that is just a catalyst to get us to we've all been in a situation like if anyone's ever gone camping where you're like oh shit there's no civil like things could go sideways and no one's here to help me you yep, know? i think i think having factors of vulnerability and isolation really like put things over the edge for me in horror mm-hmm. you know you don't have the protections of modern civilization i mean it you're just that which could have represented anything it could have been disease it could have been famine it could have been plague it could have been anything that could have happened to them out in the wilderness i mean sh- she could have been anything but that isolation and right. lack of protection like right away i was like oh fuck <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because again, it gets it gets to that reptile brain, like just sort of primal terror. And it's like a thing I always think about, like the best zombie movies. To me, in the best zombie movies, the zombie is almost incidental. Like it's just a catalyst for watching people fall apart and fail you know which is why like there's the whole like argument about fast zombies versus slow zombies and that's like i like both i mean i'm not gonna like wade into that but i will say like the power of the slow zombie is that it gives the humans time to start fucking up and making mistakes and turning on each other yeah you know if it's a fast zombie movie you're just like trying to survive the whole time sure, sure, sure. but when it's but when it's the slow zombie you know it's like one zombie is not a problem yeah it's real easy to get cocky about one zombie but then when there's 10 zombies or 20 zombies or 100 zombies like it's that implacability <laughs> for zombie problems is it six, <laughs> i feel like i could i could easily handle four zombies okay like if they're slow zombies sure. beyond that i feel like i'm getting bit like i'm gonna trip or something and like it, it's gonna be over yeah <laughs> yeah all right yeah but like it, <laughs> you know what it is it's it's literally named any genre of horror and as long as you can put yourself you know it doesn't have to have any resemblance to like reality it could be a ghost story it could be torture porn it could be anything but if right. you can if you can suspend reality and put yourself into the fantasy that's when i feel true horror that's the shit that stays with me you know right and that's where i think like yeah when it when it gets to that reptile brain level it's like that's when we really can relate to it on that primal level you Mm -hmm. know because like i'm not walking around the world like afraid of zombies or afraid of witches or whatever but when i'm in that moment it is is getting at these like fears that like i didn't even know i had yeah. And when when that works, it's like, yeah, like that sticks with me way more than really any other genre. Mm-hmm. It's it's an endorphin rush. You know, people always like refer to horror as like it's a roller coaster ride. And I always kind of hate that because it's like it's not an amusement park. Like that's not what it what it is. I would say it's more like it feels more like, I don't know, skydiving or something. Where there's like when it works, there's a real sense of danger to it. Yeah, yeah. And like that endorphin rush from that kind of danger. Like what horror movies or what horror books have stayed like what not the scariest ones, but the ones that have stayed with you? Like what are the ones that you think about the most? Obviously the thing. 
Like that's my all-time favorite. And that is one. I mean, and that's an easy answer because that's like everybody's favorite horror movie, but it is genuinely one that sticks with me. Yeah. To be a little more obscure, I would say a couple movies that like people don't think of or particularly remember. There's one from oh God, it's like the early 90s called Jack B. Nimble. Okay. That like I think almost nobody would remember. Um, yeah. But that one I remember really unsettled me. Mm-hmm. Um, also from the same period, there's one called The Johnsons, which I don't even know. It was like a Danish film. Oh, ooh. oh, wait. Yeah. Um, oh, is it the one about the family? It's the father and son. Is it that I one? I think so. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do know that one. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, more recently in the bougie horror realm, <laughs> probably my favorite recent horror movie is one called The Invitation. It came out. Oh, you know what? I've got that on my like watch list. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, you should watch that one. It, it's it's a slow burn, mm-hmm. um, but it gets to this ending that's just, I don't want to give too much away about it, but the ending just like has stuck with me for years. Mm-hmm. Um, another real slow burn recent one is one called The Black Coat's Daughter. Oh, I've seen that one. That's a great one. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very um, like art housey horror. Yeah, yeah. What have you seen recently? Because I feel like there's a lot of, I mean, obviously Jordan Peele too. I, I can't, I can't not mention Jordan Peele stuff. I know. I hate myself for not having seen Nope yet. This is like the downside to like having kids. You can't get out much. But uh-huh. like everything that he's doing right now is fucking great. I'm fully support his shit. One thing that comes to mind when we're talking about shit that's with us, the ending to Stephen King's revival. Do you remember like the last- Oh, yeah. The, the book, last yeah. 10 pages of the book that fucking stayed with me. You know why? Because it made me question, like granted, I'm not a terribly religious person, but raised in the Catholic church. That uh-huh. shit made me question everything that I have vaguely believed happens to us after we die. Mm-hmm. That made me rethink that like infiltrate my brain and belief system in a way that was very personal. I was like, Oh shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I, that... I think about that ending often. Well, that's so funny because like Stephen King, and I mean, we've talked about this, like Stephen King, like famously fucks up his ending Worst endings. over and, Worst and, over, endings. and over again. <laughs> so when he nails one, like in revival, it's Shocking. so unexpected. And then, yeah. yeah, in revival, it is. I mean, I, I'm trying to think if there's, Aside from the Bachman books, it's probably his bleakest ending of anything. He's oh, ever fuck done. yeah. I mean, the book itself was fantastic. And like, let's call mm. out the fact this is another weird thing, but like, he talks about this tiny little pocket of the United States. It's called, it's a town called Netherland, Colorado. And I guarantee <laughs> you, no podcast has ever heard of Netherland, right. Colorado. There's like, at any given time, maybe 200 people in this town. It is mm-hmm. like nowhere in the middle of Colorado. But my family happens to have a little fucking house in, in Nederland, right. Colorado, in the middle of nowhere on the side of a mountain. It is extremely isolated. And the fact that I'm reading Revival and like half the book takes place in Nederland, Colorado. I, I forgot. Of- I forgot that it was Nederland. Yeah. I knew. I remember it was Colorado, but I forgot it was Netherlands. I would love to know what made him pick such a weird little off the map place. Mm-hmm. You know, well, anyway. that Netherlands not far from I think uh, Estes Park, right? Which is where it's not. It's like forty five minutes. Yeah. So he's probably been there, like when he was in Estes Park, which obviously is where the Stanley Hotel, which is the basis of The Shining, is uh, based on. Nice um, segue into yeah. my next interruption. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. 
we were just there three weeks ago for um we That's were just right, at the yeah. we were in Estes Park. We were at the Stanley Hotel and like just like little sidebar on that. I mean, we were with a group of friends. It was mm. um there was my my husband, my brother-in-law, two friends, and then my daughter who's four. And right. it was broad daylight. The place, I will say in reality, is crawling with tourists day mm. and night. You know, it's, right. it is not a quiet, creepy place. It's, it's, it's also like quiet. kind of in the middle of town. Like it's not isolated, it like the overlook. <laughs> it is totally not isolated. Yes, it's right in the middle of town, which you pull up and you you walk in and you're like, oh man, like this is not anything like what I thought I would experience. So we went to the bar, we had one drink, decided we were just going to wander around the hotel. My husband was like, let's go see if anything weird happens. And we all like laughed because we were like, it's broad daylight and there's a million people here. It's nothing weird's going to happen. In the time that we were there, I want to say 15 fucking crazy things happened to us just from <laughs> wandering around, like wandering around some quieter hallways, taking pictures. All the pictures we took on our iPhones came out fucked up. Like all of our photos unanimously, wow. whose phone we use, all of them came out fucked up and weird. I mean, we were there for maybe 20 minutes just wandering around. And in that time, I mean, so many weird things happened to us that we couldn't ignore them. So that place <laughs> has, some, it has, it has true energy behind it. And you think about how many people are like infiltrating its hallways and how many tourists mm-hmm. are there all day. And the fact that still very creepy and unexplainable things were happening, that's got some dark energy. That place does. It's interesting because it's not like I went there. I've been there a couple times. And I think the last time I was there was about 12 years ago. And we we stayed there. I was again, I was there with some friends, like you said. And we did their little like ghost tour at night and everything and wandered the halls. And it's weird at the at the Stanley, they really just let you wander the halls. Like they yeah, don't block totally. it. Off. We were not guests staying there and we got into every floor. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like most places are not that open. <laughs> I think we went there sort of thinking like, oh, it'll be fun. And it's based, you know, the shining is based on it, but not really thinking it would be genuinely creepy. But there I remember they pointed out one room, I think it's on the second floor, that's supposed to be the most haunted room. Yeah. And there's just something that was like, yeah, I don't want to go in that room. Like there was just a real vibe there. We ran into a couple cold pockets and stuff. Yeah, that that's an interesting place. It's yeah. also just a beautiful old building. Like totally. If anybody listening gets the chance, like definitely check it out. It's like worth the trip, even though it, it is kind of a tourist trap. It is one hundred percent worth checking out. And just in that whole area, Estes Park, it's it's super pretty. So yeah. it's worth the drive. What other? So you mentioned revival. Like what else? What other? Yeah. Um. Oh, the worst one. Cabin at the end of the world. From our friend Paul, Paul Tremblay. Tremblay. Yeah. Our friend who definitely has no fucking idea who I am or that I exist. He's a friend <laughs> of a friend. Paul right. Tremblay, amazing, amazing horror author, still a school teacher here in Beverly, Massachusetts, which is mm-hmm. so adorable. But he's yeah. like, I mean, making such huge waves in the horror world and just like really, really tackling horror from a very fresh perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just like, I mean, I, I've met him a few times randomly and he's such a nice, like down to earth dude. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as very quaint that he's still like a high school teacher. Like, yeah. And I, terrifying stories. Right. And I think I, I mean, I've read an interview where he's he's a high school teacher just because he, he loves teaching. Like, yeah. like he's not planning to quit. Even if he, you know, becomes Stephen King size successful, he's not planning to quit. I mentioned him actually on my last episode where I interviewed Gwendolyn Keist, who's also like a a, a yeah. pretty big name horror writer. And I mentioned, um, I told uh, her, I said that she, a guy named Stephen Graham Jones and Paul Tremblay are the three writers that I'm always recommending to people who claim that they don't like horror. Sure. Because sure. Yeah. Um, they all have something that I think can appeal outside of the genre. 
yeah, yeah Paul Tremblay is great. Cabin at the End of the World. That one's <sighs> very upsetting. His new book, The Paul Bearers Club. I, I just started it. I just yeah. that. I love from day from like sentence one. I'm immediately into it. Um, mm-hmm. Cabin at the End of the World. You asked what stayed with me. Cabin at the End of the World stayed with me because it was so fucking easy to put yourself in the middle of the situation. Right. Anybody, anybody anywhere has been on a family vacation and shit goes sideways and you question everything the whole time. Is this Mm -hmm. real? Is this not real? And I mean, it's a beautiful slow burn. I just, I, that book stays with me. I don't want to spoil it, but like, I feel like everybody has a different approach to the ending. It's one of those Mm -hmm. party questions where you can, at the end of the book, you can say, would you have done the same thing or would you have done something differently? And everyone I've ever asked that question to has a completely different answer. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's what he does so well as he leaves you in this place of ambiguity where you really don't know what to think at the end of his books, but not, but in a way that's totally satisfying. It's not frustrating at all. No, it feels like he closed the loop. He tied up all the loose ends. Yes, it is a little ambiguous, but the ending itself is still horrifying enough. Right. You're like, oh, I am satiated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think Cabin at the End of the World, that's definitely, I think, his darkest book. Totally. Um, And you know what? It touches on the isolation. It touches mm -hmm. on like concepts of home invasion, which I find fucking terrifying all the time. Amelia, Um, too. Like, that's her big, she can't do home invasion stuff. No, absolutely. Home invasion terrifies me. Fear of something happening to your family. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely all of these things are real world fears that I don't care if you like horror or not, that shit scares you, you know? Right. So right. it was so easy to put yourself into like the middle of this book and to ride through it from a very personal perspective. That's why I, that one stays with me a lot. There's one I know I introduced you to that uh, we should mention because it's it's one of my all time favorites and it's one people don't talk about enough anymore. But I, I think you I know, know what you're I'm gonna saying. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's uh the md by thomas m dish that was um, amazing that's a great fucking book i that still have one... it, by the way and i'm actually not going to give it back because i borrowed it 20 years ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i've replaced it don't worry <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that uh thomas m dish he was mostly known as like a, a sci-fi writer like kind of new wave sci-fi author but then he did this like series of horror novels set in minnesota and he started with one called the businessman which is good um but then the second one was the md in that book I mean, that's probably my favorite non-Stephen King horror novel. Mm-hmm. And there have been a couple I've read in the last few years that probably come close to rivaling it. But it, it is one of those books that I just have to return to like once every couple of years. It's so fucking weird. Like it, it starts off like sort of very suburban, you know, family drama. And then it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder as it goes. Yeah. What? Yeah. What was your? What did you think? Like the first time you read it? Because I remember giving it to you, thinking like you'll either love it or hate it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I remember thinking there was a like halfway through the book, maybe two thirds of the way through the book, the storyline shifts a lot because it goes from him being a child to him being an adult. So right. of course there's going to be a shift in like what's happening. I remember like loving, loving, loving the first two thirds, and I really, really liked the ending. But like if I had to pit them against each other, I thought the beginning was if the beginning was very much in line with like my personal brand of horror. So mm-hmm. the first two thirds I thought were absolutely fucking dynamic, and then the second part I thought was still really awesome but different. Yeah, and Is we should fair? just give like. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It is got this really crazy shift that happens in that last section. It just uh, for people because it is kind of an obscure book. It was a big deal, like 
in the early 90s when it came out but it's been i think kind of forgotten just to give listeners like a little bit of a like the premise it's basically it's set in uh minnesota it focuses at first on a small boy his name's billy michaels who meets santa claus one day uh-huh. um and santa claus basically tells him like i'm actually not santa claus i am the greek god mercury and gives him a caduceus which is you know the the symbol for medicine and which grants him the power to heal but in order to heal he has like to recharge the caduceus he has to hurt somebody too so it's this kind of you see and then it follows billy throughout his life as he becomes a doctor you know sort of trying to help people but then like always somehow hurting the people closest to him sure he's like the the anti-villain villain you know right it's very much like it's a really interesting take on like the faustian bargain like selling your soul to the devil kind of thing yeah. but yeah but then yeah and like you said that last third see i love the last third because it gets so bonkers it's um bonkers. <laughs> yeah but it's it's pretty great so that's one i don't think you can find it like it's not in print anymore but if you guys uh go to just like google it you'll find used copies and stuff it's it's definitely worth checking out yeah and i will not be lending out my copy so fuck off <laughs> <laughs> do not call me it's scotty's copy and i'm keeping it <laughs> so <laughs> do you remember like some of your earliest experiences with like early horror like things that you really really loved early on that really hooked you like i remember mm-hmm. a few books that really fucking stayed with me i remember so my dad is a mega horror fan I think I've probably outpaced him at this stage, but he was always a huge Stephen King fan. We always had bookshelves filled with his Stephen King books. So that's kind of how I got into it. The first Stephen King book I read, I think was Silver Bullet, because it was really mm. short. And I want to say it might have even been in a comic book format. I was very right. Young. Well, yeah, because it's Cycle of the Werewolf, and it's illustrated by um, yes. uh, Bernie Wrightson. And then, of course, yes. it became the movie Sil- Silver Bullet. Yeah, totally. So I want to say I was probably eight when I read that one. And I was like, oh, this is fucking amazing. So it was a mm. First time I kind of, I like ingested horror in a way that I didn't find terrifying. It actually made me feel brave. Like up until then, I've been scared of horror movies and didn't want to watch them. I was too scared for those things. But finally, like I found a book that I was like, oh, this actually made me feel really brave. And now I want to mm-hmm. keep testing the waters and pushing the envelope to see how much is going to actually scare me. So yeah. after like ingesting a few early Stephen King, my dad introduced me to Thomas Tryon, which was Harvest Oh, yeah. Yeah, Harvest we Tom. we bonded over about. Harvest Home. Yeah. Yes, yes, because you yeah. want to talk about some obscure books. I don't think a lot. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of people don't still follow like Harvest Home or the other. What do you, do you think they're bigger than I give them credit for? They're so in like the. I think they're they're definitely held up as classics. I don't think they're forgotten the way like I feel like the Thomas M. Dish stuff has been sort of forgotten. Sure. But Harvest Home in particular, uh, I don't think is read that much anymore. People don't talk about it. His mm-hmm. other book, The Other, uh, was the one he was the most known for. Yeah. Um, I loved Harvest Home though. That that was I the one that I fell in love with. Loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I read it at I read it at a young enough age that I did not see the ending coming because I feel like this has been this concept has been revisited a million times in a million different formats. So now at this salty fucking age, I can see the ending coming from uh-huh. a lot of different things. But at the time, it was the first time I had read a book where this was the ending, and I was fucking shocked. Yeah, so, yeah, and it's very um, 
again, I, yeah, we don't want to give too much away. There, there are things out there kind of like it, but I would it, like it was one of the first folk horror books I'd read. Uh, yeah. If you're a fan of things like Midsummer and uh, the Wicker Man, things like that, uh, it, it's it's kind of in that. Yeah. Realm. But it's fantastic. It and Thomas Tryon was such an interesting dude because he started. He was like a B movie actor that kind of gave up on Hollywood and then became this like celebrated horror author. Did not know that. Yeah, this and then he died. Yeah, I think he had stomach cancer or something. He died kind of young, but yeah, yeah. That that's that, uh, Harvest Home is one of the. I, oh man, I would just want to go reread that right now. I know. It's been a while since yeah. I read that one. You're you're totally right. That actually was like one of the. That was probably my first intro to folk horror, which is a genre that I fucking love. And it's nice mm-hmm. to see folk horror getting such a renaissance right now. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I think we talked about. I did not love the movie Midsummer, okay. but like. I did. I feel like I might have just been in a bad mood because I, when I think back on it, there's images from Midsummer that totally stick in my head. I, I really feel like I need to give that one another chance. I do love like the Wicker Man and stuff. I did not find Midsummer scary. I found Midsummer awesome from a, I mean, women's empowerment, toxic masculinity, like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the shitty boyfriend trope, you know, like, like th- those are the angles that I loved about mm-hmm. it. I love that she comes into her own in the end, that she gets right. her revenge on this fucking Douchey terrible boyfriend. boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. Like that's the stuff that I loved about Midsummer, but I didn't, I remember what I loved about Midsummer also was that sense the whole time where you just, I mean, what you like most about the best horror movies is you don't fucking know what's going on most of the time. And so you're going mm-hmm. through this whole thing. You don't really know what's going on. Yes. You're isolated. You're kind of out in the wilderness with a group of people who you don't know, you don't really speak the language. It's a new right. culture. So there is that period there. There is that kind concept of isolation but then also there's the revenge angle which i thought was awesome but Mm -hmm. i mean from the horror perspective it's only really horror because of like the physical things that happen but right without that it's really just like you know revenge porn (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no i feel like it was a very well done movie and just for whatever reason it didn't click like i can't point to a thing i didn't like about it it just didn't click with me when i saw it but i feel like if i watched it again it might uh well, work how a about, bit better how about hereditary what do you think of that See, i love i loved hereditary yeah um so yeah. like it's not it's not a knock on ari aster i think he's a fantastic filmmaker yeah. it just yeah for whatever reason it didn't totally click uh are another only, are those his only two that he's done for horror i believe so i know he was like he did this infamous short film the premise of which i'm not going to describe because it's just the premise needs a trigger warning but like just google ari aster and you can find it i'm trying to remember if he did something before hereditary but i don't i don't think so okay um i think hereditary that was definitely his like breakout yeah i would say like other horror that stays with you uh like we need to talk about kevin but that's more from like a real situation Mm -hmm. yeah well that that's just such a I never read the book, but it's deeply disturbing movie. Totally. Um, But you were asking, like, what were the early things? So for you, it was like Harvest Home and things. For me, uh, movie-wise, I remember watching, was in a hotel room with my parents, and it was like Siskel and Ebert at the movies, and they were doing this, like, rundown of all these different horror movies. And they were showing clips of, like, the most famous scenes from Mm -hmm. all these movies, and and they were all out of context. Yeah. So, like, you had The Exorcist, you had Reagan on the bed, and The Exorcist, you know, flipping around. I remember the shower scene from Psycho where you saw the shadow coming up behind Marion Crane. And there was a there was a few others. And the fact that they were so out of context yeah. totally rattled me because I was probably six, seven years old. So yeah. I had no idea what 
these movies were and i really was terrified to take a shower for a long time because of that shower scene from psycho i didn't realize it was like norman bates's mother and like the whole plot it was just this thing coming while i'm in the shower you know yeah but like tell me i mean you live you live alone tell me Mm -hmm. you don't still feel nervous about what's on the other side of that curtain all the time every so often aware you know, uh, every so often, and sometimes my dog will startle me. She'll poke her head in, and I'll be like, "What's <laughs> oh, yeah." <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there's something about that. Like you said, it's just that like elemental vulnerability of that yeah. scene, and and again, not knowing anything about the plot. And I think the, but like I said, I think the fact that they're out of context, I was able to like build my own story around them the first horror movie i remember watching was uh george c scott film from 1980 called the changeling oh my god i just watched that like a month ago yeah i watched that i feel like my brother and my now sister-in-law then his girlfriend uh were babysitting me Mm -hmm. and they were watching it and i like they're you know irresponsible older brother not putting me to bed before watching the scary movie and i just remember being terrified of the movie the thing is i was terrified but I, i just wanted more and whenever we would go to the video store i would always wander over to the horror section and just stare at the boxes yeah. You know, the one yeah. I, I remember the box for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Again, not knowing anything about the story. I remember um the box for the movie It's Alive with the, mm-hmm. the claw coming out of the baby carriage. Yep, that's a good one. Um, yeah. You know, and like what was sort of great about that, because I was even at the time, I was, I think, a little budding writer kid. Mm-hmm. I was always just telling myself stories. These things kind of imprinted on me. So I started telling myself scary stories from like a very young age. Yeah. And I was into monsters and stuff very young. And then Raul Dahl. Raul Dahl was like Ooh, that's some early on. Up, like early children's horror. You're going to tell me yeah. that like that uh, Matilda is not fucking horror. That's horror. You know, James, James of the Giant Peach fucked me up when yeah. I was a kid. <laughs> a terrifying book. Fuck yeah. yeah. What yep. was your relationship? Because I've talked to other people about this and it was a thing that I totally missed. I've talked about it on, on the show a couple of times. What was your relationship to like the R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike stuff? Did you read? Oh, that was that? hard. That was hardcore. The DNA. So it was like, yeah, I grew up 1000% on R.L. Stein. And then when I got old enough, moved into Christopher Pike, which was like what mm-hmm. I would call like first base, like teenage horror. <laughs> you know, it was like, right. like over the sweater, you know, making out, but like mix in a bunch of horror and I remember a clip of his that had like themes of horror to them that I was like holy fuck like this is a little above what I thought I was getting into you know mm-hmm. um where it was like faking your own death and coming oh, back wow. for revenge and like yeah like some of the Christopher Pike books were really intense and I remember reading huh. those but yeah the R.L. Stein books I think I owned every single one and read the fuck out of those it's so funny because somehow you're, I just you're, you're missed just, it you're like you're three years older than me and mm-hmm. I feel like they were 100% my era and then kind of disappeared for a long time I know he's having a mm-hmm. resurgence now but they were they really disappeared for a long time yeah I mean they were around when I was a kid but because I remember them but, but you're right it might have been just a little bit older by the time mm-hmm. they got popular so I was ma- I had maybe aged out but yeah okay. somehow I missed that entire thing I do remember there was a babysitter's club book about a haunted dollhouse that I read probably I, in the third or fourth grade. So wait a second. So I have that book. If you can believe it, I actually bought it. <laughs> it's not the babysitter's club though. It's, it's actually called like, it's called like the haunted dollhouse. It's fucking, it's sitting around here somewhere. Cause I just read it. And yes, it is definitely written for 12 year olds, but the theme 
is way scarier than what a 12 year old is prepared to read. Like mm-hmm. I remember reading it and just being like, oh, so each the concept is that the dolls move around in the house and reflect things that are going to happen to the family, which include murder. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah, really- okay. So that, this was the one I read. Yeah, so it wasn't yeah. babysitter. I was convinced it was babysitter. No, no, the I actually I have it. I swear to God, I'm gonna get it out of my bedroom and like take a photo of it. It's um, I I found it at a vintage bookstore and bought it just so that I could reread it, and I was like. This is fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, this is why I'm disturbed, you know? <laughs> I'll have to look that up because that I was probably in the third grade when I read that and it, it definitely was scary at the time. Yeah. We are not huh? talking about we are not talking about the most important and influential books of our childhoods, Scotty. You know what I'm about what? to say? I have no idea. Scary stories to tell. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've even got the t shirt. Yeah. And- what were the one? What about it fucked you up the most? The fucking illustrations. It was the art. I mean, the stories are were scary enough, you know. Totally. But yep. they were like pretty simple. Yep. But those illustrations, the one I remember was Mitai Dodi Walker. Oh my with god! The head that I comes out that of the yeah, yes. comes out of the yep. chimney. Yep. Yeah, that and I think that one really scared me because we lived on the edge of the woods and I could just imagine the voice out in the woods singing Mitai Dodi Walker. You know. I always imagined it as my house, even though we didn't have a fireplace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, those books were, I don't know how he got away with those illustrations in kids books, because they're more terrifying than the illustrations and book covers you read of like adult horror novels. Yep. And it was very simple. I mean, I'm sure anybody listening is probably these, but like super simple, like ink on paper. There's no Mm -hmm. color. It is just the way that he illustrated was just so graphic, you know? Yeah. And apparently they re-released those books later with totally different artwork. And I'm like, what's the point? Like hard pass. Hard pass. (laughs) I I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. Um, But you had to be a certain age reading these to like take in how disturbing they were and how terrifying they were. Well, that was the thing about growing. This is a thing Amelia and I talk about a lot is growing up in the 80s. -hmm. um, You know, we're I guess you're like an elder millennial. I am. Yep. We're like younger Gen Xers. Uh, I mean, but we're all basically the same generation (laughs) within a few years. And like the 80s was a time where like no one gave a shit about kids. Like everyone's panicked about the satanic panic and, you know, oh, Dungeons and Dragons is going to turn our kids into devil worshipers. Meanwhile, they're letting us watch movies like The Dark Crystal, which is a kid's (laughs) movie about genocide. Like (laughs) no one was worried about our like mental well-being with like the stuff we were consuming. It was just they didn't want us to like start worshiping the devil. But like, sure, and big war on drugs, and I was like too, like I was too young to care about drugs, <laughs> right? Yeah. But and then meanwhile, it's like, oh, you can't play D and D because you'll become a devil worshiper. But meanwhile, it's like go play in that ditch and try not to like bust your head open on a bunch <laughs> of rocks, like. It was just an era that, like, I almost feel bad for, like, I feel like the younger millennials, like, younger than you, were, like, the first generation of kids who really had the helicopter parents that were, like, managing everything that they saw and and did. And, like, you know, when we were kids, it was just, like, go outside and play and, like, I hope you return. Um, And I just feel like that's not something that exists anymore. And I feel bad for kids that don't have that. No. And to be fair, I mean, like, I grew up in a very fucking rural, like, bye, mom. And I would just walk out of my house and wander the woods 
for right. hours. Same, same hours. for me. Yeah. Yeah. And just like get lost in the woods. And I mean, that was a great time of like creativity. Not that I wasn't glued to my television for like a million hours. <laughs> right. But when I did like go outside, I mean, it was just hours of getting lost in the woods. And my mom wasn't like, oh my God, where was she? Like, I'll come home mm-hmm. eventually. It was just, that was the thought process at the time. Right, you know? right, right. And I mean, I guess it would be harder, like, having a kid today, particularly, like, being in a city. Like, you can't really do that. But, like, I do feel like that was just an era that, I don't know, we'll never see again. But that a lot of that stuff is kind of what just, like, led me into horror. And then for me, it was, because I was really into fantasy for a long time. I was really, I was deeply into Dungeons and Dragons because I'm a fucking nerd. And then when I was like 12 or 13, I read my first Stephen King. I read Pet Cemetery, And it was just like, it was, it was, there was no, it was just the beginning of the end for me (laughs) (laughs) of being like a a responsible, productive adult doing (laughs) anything with my life of social value. (laughs) It's like, nope, just going to tell monster stories for the rest of my life. 100%. You know what's funny? I feel like I've told, I told Stephen King book club affectionately called SKBC about this. Everybody knows it's a great inside joke, but my dad was like, have at it, read any Stephen King books you want, but do not read Gerald's game. And for Mm. some reason that was his line in the stand. I get it because there's sex in it, but like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's funny now that he was like, nope, that's my line in the stand. (laughs) And I mean, if you had told me that at the time, I would have been like, that would have been the first thing I would have read. I would have of course, like yes, of course. I was like waving a red flag in front of a bull for me. No, I know, but I was a good little rule follower. So of course I didn't (laughs) read it until I turned 40. I mean, it came up in SKBC. We were like, oh, let's read Gerald's game. I was like, I don't know. You guys are going to call my dad, see if I'm allowed to. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that that was actually a really good movie. I mean, say what you will about Stephen King. There's some inconsistency in the books to the movies, but like that I thought was a very fucking well done movie. Well, Mike Flanagan, who who did that, he's just like, he's one of the best filmmakers in horror today, you know, and he manages to find things in Stephen King. Like he he's found a way to adapt Stephen King, where it's just like, like most people miss what it is we actually love about Stephen King when they try to adapt it. They just focus on the monsters or whatever, and you yeah. lose the personality. When he adapts a Stephen King story, like Dr. Sleep or Gerald's Game, it feels like Stephen King. Like you feel yeah. Stephen King's personality coming through. And then of course yeah. he went on, you know, he's doing all the Netflix haunting shows and Midnight Mass and things like that. But yeah, I thought Gerald's Game was like really well done. It's not my favorite Stephen King book, but the movie was, it's one of the better adaptations. Yeah. And I mean, hot take, but I am not loving the Castle Rock series. Oh, I'm on Hulu? Castle Rock yeah. series. Yeah. I mean... I thought the first season was kind of interesting. It kind of lost me in the second season. Yeah. Totally lost me in the second season. I, you know what? I, I have a hard pass on things where you take a beloved character and rewrite their narrative mm-hmm. and you and ask me to like buy into like a new reality, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I mean, Annie Wilkes is Annie Wilkes and she, she has like a storyline. Well, And I don't, I didn't need all that backstory for her. Like, um, I I thought Lizzie Kaplan did a good job portraying her, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Did you, this is so obscure, but you just made me think of this. Did you ever, I want to say this is definitely like a product early nineties. Do you remember a very short lived Stephen King television series called Kingdom Hospital? Uh-huh. Do you yeah. really? You're the yeah. only person I have ever asked who said yes. Like, <laughs> I mean, of course. Remembers this. 
Who are you asking? Of course I remember that. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, like the minute I heard Kim was putting out a new television series, I watched it. I remember it not being amazing. But yeah, I was, it's not great. Yeah, but I was still bummed when they canceled it after like, I don't know, half well, like season. It's actually a remake of a Danish television series uh, that was originally done by Lars von Trier. Really? Uh, I think well, just called The Kingdom, I think. Who has done like, oh my God, Lars von Trier, fuck, like Melancholy. <laughs> Uh, fuck yeah. me nymphomaniac holy shit oh i didn't even watch that one yeah oh you I, want, I, you I, want to watch a movie to make your penis invert into your body i want to make you not want to have sex yeah i mean that's how i feel about most lives i sure i really like less is more with oh. him for me i can i can do his stuff every so often but and he's got that new one uh, i think it's the house that jack built um that okay. is it's uh stars matt Dillon. it's a it's a serial killer movie i haven't watched it it's yeah. everyone i've talked to who's watched that movie has been like fuck lars von trier for making me watch that he can go fuck himself i hate him i hate the world i hate life <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know if I need to watch that. <laughs> I have a pretty strong stomach for fucked up dark stuff, but he yeah. pushes the line. But actually, The Kingdom, the the TV show, is actually pretty good from what I yeah. remember. I think I only watched the first season of it. Um, And then, of course, yeah, Stephen King did it as Kingdom Hospital, which is a lot of fun. I don't think you... I looked for it. Um, I don't think you can even find it on you DVD. You can't find it anywhere, no. Yeah. no. Definitely sure something that came and went. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy you knew such an obscure fucking thing. Of course you do. <laughs> of course I did. Well, we should talk about... So we have our own, like... I mean, everyone on the podcast has heard my ghost story. Sure. But we have our own, like, shared haunting experience from Boston. So. We do. We do. And I feel like we would be remiss if we did not talk about the very fucking haunted apartment that I lived in. Mm-hmm. At yes. So yeah. um, do you want me to intro or do you want to you want to start by telling what you know? Well, why don't you intro? Because uh, and just tell us like what happened. Like, sure, sure, sure. Okay. Before so, I was involved. This is the backstory. And so I should qualify quantify like who I am in terms of the belief system. Okay. So I'm not the type of person to walk in and be like, you know, ah, everything's haunted. I like to right. be skeptical. I like to be level headed headed and i like to wait until i've really explored all possible reasons why something that is supernatural couldn't be explained away by something in reality right Mm -hmm. like is that fair so anyway so i'm i'm living in a beautiful brownstone uh, in the back bay of bu um, right, right on Bay State Road. And if you if you're in the Boston area, it's one of these gorgeous, gorgeous like side back streets. It's all very old brownstones. So mm-hmm. I'm living in a garden level apartment and it it's you know, it's a studio apartment. It's not big, but it's like super comfortable. So I'm living there for the duration of my time at BU. And I moved that was in, right, that was right kind of around Kenmore Square, right? Right outside of Kenmore Square. Yep, right behind yeah, so um, for anyone right who bookstore. Yeah, that's right. And and I was going to say, so anyone who watches Red Sox games and the famous Sitco sign, yep. the sit- yeah, the Sitco sign's on top of the BU bookstore. Your apartment building was right behind that. Yes. Right? Yep. That's, yeah. that's how I used to tell people to, how to find my apartment. Go to the, the Sitco sign. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I moved in. I never got like a weird vibe from it when I initially moved in. Perfectly happy, perfectly comfortable, cozy studio apartment. So mm-hmm. what? So a few months into living there, I found that I started to wake up in the middle of the night and I would wake up at exactly the same time every night. It was 3.42 a.m. every single mm-hmm. night, <clears throat> which fine. My 
explanation was it could be anything. It could be a heater kicking on. It could be a trash truck going by at the same time every night. There are a million things in a very loud city that can wake you up at the same time every night. So, but it became very annoying because I would wake up and I wouldn't just wake up groggy. I would wake up fully awake, Mm -hmm. which was very annoying. You know, it would take me a good 20 minutes to like calm your heart back down enough where you can fall back to sleep. Okay. So 3.42 AM, this is happening like for months and it's. And and just a little quick interjection if anyone who's studied like paranormal stuff parapsychologists will tell you you know the idea of midnight being the witching hour quote-unquote is incorrect it's actually most paranormal events happen between three and four in the morning yeah that sounds about right i believe that (laughs) i did not know that but that sounds totally right so waking up at 3 42 a.m every single night no matter what's going on but every single fucking night and it's infuriating you know Mm -hmm. so i remember that's around the time that i started to mention it to people and i feel like i mentioned it to you i mentioned it to our friend dana i mentioned it to a couple people i was like man every fucking night 3 42 on the dot i wake right up fully awake roll over make note of the clock to the point where i just expect it now right so this is going on for months and we're sort of we're now we're starting to track it as a group because it's something that we're aware of right right so you know i'm starting to have like weird dreams that focus on this older woman and they're nonsensical dreams. They're not really worth noting to anyone, but six months into living this apartment, I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, assuming I'm going to roll over and it's 3 42 AM mm-hmm. and I roll over and the old woman from my dreams is standing at the side of my bed. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that this is not a dream, I am fully awake. I am fully present. And it is the normal 3 42 AM. Mm-hmm. I am fully awake. And this older woman is standing at the side of my bed staring at me directly into my eyes, making direct eye contact. And I am so fucking awake in this moment. My heart is pounding out of my chest. And, and what did she look like? So she's an older woman. She's got uh, like a pinafore apron on. I uh-huh. want to say very like industrial era. Yeah, industrial era is how I would describe her. So not super old fashioned, but definitely more that industrial era of like pinafore, house dress. She's right. got her okay. hair tucked up into, a, you know, a, an appropriate bun for like a middle-aged woman. I, if I could guess, she was probably early 60s. Mm-hmm. But the energy of hatred and anger radiating off of her was palpable. Right. Um, I mean, if you've looked at somebody with pure hatred or you've been looked at with pure hatred, you're aware of that emotion. And I wake up and I roll over and it is not a ghostly figure. It's not a shadow. It is a full woman standing next to my bed and standing so close to me that, I mean, I am now fully awake. And the worst fucking thing that happened is that she bent down to get right up in my face. Wow. In that moment. I'd forgotten that part of it. That was the worst part. And that... I mean, even talking about it now, I'm getting clumped because it makes me like really emotional when I think back to like how fucking scared I was in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, again, it's it's the concept of isolation. It's the concept of like breaking and entering and to wake up and to have someone standing on the side of your bed and to look at you with hatred and then knowing that, the, that you've seen them and having them bend down and look you right in the eye. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is the most scared I think I've ever been. All I could do in the minute, covers over the head, like I'm four years old. Right. You know, I I must have been under the covers for an hour, just paralyzed with fear. 
about yeah. this. Finally, after maybe an hour, I don't know, I pop my head out. Of course, she's gone. Of course, I can breathe again, you know. Right. Um, but it's the most scared I've ever been with this full entity looking over and interacting with me. I think that's the worst part. It wasn't just Yeah, because that's that's uncommon with like haunting right. story. Yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, we, you know, I, I've never had something that tried to interact with me and it was very hateful. So the dreams that I started to have after that became a lot more vivid. And I felt Mm. like, I felt like I just had, I was more bought into her storyline. Like now that I had seen her, Mm. I feel like I was starting to catch um, what I guess, I don't know. It's like glimpses of memories. And I remember one of the worst dreams I had that I started having as a recurring dream. I would see a man who I assume was her husband and he was always facing away from her towards what was essentially my kitchen area Mm. and I would just watch her walk slowly up behind him just very aware that her intention was to hurt him Mm. so like that was it it was the constant same recording of this snippet of her walking slowly up behind him slowly and quietly and I always wanted to like alert him to her presence but I mean that was it it was just literally this same snippet again and again and again that I would dream about for months and months basically until I moved out Um, but it was I mean the dreams after that became like very vivid and I was just very aware that she was a presence in my apartment yeah and did you have something happen with your rosary um I, I mean, I, yes, again, like Catholic girl and always like, I've always been scared of the dark. You know, mm. I've always slept with the TV on. After I saw her, I started sleeping with the light on in my right. studio. I mean, if you walked into my apartment, you would think in the middle of the night that we were having a party. Like it was just <laughs> every light on everywhere and the TV on. Yeah, I had, I had rosaries like fall off the wall. I always had like a little rosary, like thumbtack to the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, if only just to like, I don't know, word off fucking bad spirits, whatever. Right. So yeah, always had that stuck to the wall. And I would come home and find it um, on the floor. I also had weird things go missing around my apartment. And I, granted, I don't have any roommates. You know, mm. I didn't have people. Right. Stopping this by was a room. small studio apartment. I remember that. Very small studio apartment. Yeah, it was essentially like a tiny little kitchenette, one bathroom, and then the bed was in the same area as the living room. Mm-hmm. So like a true studio, there are no walls. So yeah, I remember things going missing and then turning up exactly where I had left them mm-hmm. like weeks later. Yes. The, so the rosary was- story, I remember, wasn't there something where like you woke up and the rosary was like spinning or something? Um, or am I misremembering that? I don't remember. I don't remember that one. But to be fair, it has been like twenty fucking years. You're right. Um, what I do remember is that when things started to get really intense, you know, the dreams were really bad. Um, having her appear next to my bed, you know, I started to get really scared to sleep at night, obviously. And so that's when you came in. You uh-huh. stayed there one night. Dana came in. Dana stayed there one night. I had a couple people come over with the intention of being like. All right, with more than one person in the apartment, let's see if anything happens, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so then what happened when you came over? So I stayed there two nights for two different reasons so the first time it was uh you specifically asked me you, you had told me all this stuff was going on I and mean, you wanted me to stay there to see if something would happen so it was like it was planned uh i remember we get there like you know you had a big like king bed or something king or queen i don't remember but we were both sharing the same bed we just like hung out for a while then you kind of rolled over and went to sleep and I was kind of drifting off and I must have slept for a while because what happened, it was, it ended up being, and I think it was around,
around, I don't remember if it was exactly 3.42 a.m., but it was around that time. Yeah. I was facing away from you. I think it was looking like towards your closet, if I remember. I was in this kind of half asleep, half awake place. And all of a sudden, the bed stretched out. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like, you know, the, those like Alfred Hitchcock vertigo cam shots where it's like, you know, like stretches. Yeah. So that happened and I felt something grab my arm because I was sleeping and my arms were kind of like sticking out. And I felt something. I never saw anything. I felt something grab my arm and like yank sure. really hard. And I woke up screaming. Which has never happened. Like, I'm not someone who wakes up screaming, but I woke up legit screaming. You scared the fucking shit out of me. Oh, you were so (laughs) mad at me. You were so mad. (laughs) I mean, you scared the shit. You legitimately woke up screaming, and you also woke up like totally out of it. Like, I could tell you woke Mm -hmm. up out of a dead sleep Mm because your your eyes weren't even focused. Like, you were you were flat out to like screaming. (laughs) Yeah. And the fucked up thing was like, you were like, uh, I think after that you were like, never again, you're never staying over here again. Fuck this. Like, <laughs> I was like, so I was really embarrassed about it. Um, but then like X amount of time, I want several months later, I want to say you and I were drinking at this bar that was sort of down by Fenway. It was called Antoinua. I remember mm-hmm. um, yeah. we both got a uh, like pretty shit faced and then yeah, it was like that night too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 That's right. I'd forgotten that. Cause I think I didn't know who she was and you were like excited. And I was like, I don't know. It's a person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you could bring it on as much as I was. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but like, I remember us leaving the bar and it was like late enough. That was like, Oh, I think the, like, the taxis are done for the night. Yeah. The taxis usually ran until about two in the morning, but somehow it was after two. And it was like middle of the fucking winter. And you lived on the far end of Comab from where we were. And right. I, I was a good far. mile, mile and a half away, I think. Yeah. And so you were like, I remember you were not excited about me staying over because this whole <laughs> thing had happened. <laughs> and you were like, Ugh, I guess you can crash at my place. But you're like, be better than fucking, I'm fucking screaming. I was like, I know, I know, I know. And what happened? I woke up fucking screaming. Yeah, you did. Yeah, it yeah. happened fucking twice. <laughs> I don't remember what happened the second time. Yeah. Um, But I remember waking up screaming out of some nightmare. Yeah. And yep. you being, at, at this point, you were almost like resigned. You were just like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, God damn it. <laughs> Well, yeah. you, you know what I remember a lot? This actually, your story about the dreaming that the bed was stretching. This reminds me, I used to wake up a lot. So waking up at 342, I would wake up and I would just feel the bed like vibrating. And mm-hmm. it's, yes, it's easy to say one theory. Of course, we lived right near the the T, the Boston subway system. Yeah, but that wasn't running at 342. It wasn't running at 342. It, it shuts down. I think at the time it closed at 2 Mm a.m. So, I mean, sure, you could say like, okay, it's trains moving around underground, but I think it's less likely. I would wake up with just a distinct vibration every single time. And it's something that I remember very notably. It's never happened again, you know? Yeah. yeah, During that 340 time wake up period, it happened every single time. Yeah. No, there was definitely something up in that apartment. Because I remember the first time, I think it was the first night I stayed over. I had never been to your apartment before. And we Mm -hmm. went in and I immediately, I was like, yeah, there's a vibe here. Yeah. I I, like, it was just this amorphous, like unsettled feeling. Yeah. So yeah, that was, uh, that place was. That woman, that woman was 
terrifying. And I, too, I mean, you want to talk about things that have seared themselves into your brain. Like I remember right. vividly having her bend down to look me in the eye and I mean, yeah, almost shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i did so i wanted to do a little bit of like a weirdest thing style research for this uh-huh. yeah um so i tried to find if there was anything about this about your building so i just texted you this morning and asked for your old address could not find anything on your building but i did find some things in the area if mm-hmm. you're interested in hearing oh my god yes tell me so two different apparently you were about a, two blocks away from one of the most haunted buildings of boston really okay it was the former charles gate hotel and i am going to i'm going to share my screen mm-hmm. so that you can see how close you actually were so do you see my screen yeah okay so it was the former Charles Gate Hotel. And this is how close you actually mm-hmm. were. So this is where you were. And this is the Charles Gate. So it's basically mm-hmm. 0.3 miles, six minute walk from your place. Totally. Super close. Yeah. Not even down by the crew. Like much, no. much closer. No, it's just right on the other side of Charles Gate Park. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's literally um, two blocks. So here's the story of that so the charles gate it was the former charles gate hotels built in 1901 designed by a guy named jay pickering putnam it was built on in a romanesque revival style with a conical tower in the northwest corner and sculpted copper cladding at the bottom of the projecting bay window sections and i'll post a picture in social media it was a real pretty building i remember walking by this building i had no idea what it was Okay. It was also known as the Canterbury for a while. It was a high-end fashionable hotel up into the 1920s, at which point it kind of started to fall into disrepair. There was like a 20-some year period where I think it was sort of like a tenement house. And then BU actually bought the building in 1947, turned it into a female dormitory called Charles Gate Hall. They sold the building in 1973. It became a rooming house again, kind of a tenement again for a while. And then Emerson bought it in 1981, turned it into a dormitory. Now, since the late 90s, it has been uh, converted into condos. But so here's the stories about the Charles Gate. This architect Putnam, he had put a decorative wall tile that held the likeness of his daughter Elsa Mm -hmm. placed near the elevator. And he and his family had supposedly moved into the Charles Gate after it was completed. Now, according to the legend, Elsa, who was seven years old at the time, was chasing a ball down the hallway, ran up to the elevator, lost her balance, fell into the elevator shaft and died. Wow. Now, supposedly at, at the moment she hit the ground, the tile with her image on it cracked. BU and Emerson students over the years, when it was a dorm room, claimed that they would see a young girl searching the halls for her ball. Now, unfortunately for us, but fortunately for Elsa, this doesn't appear to be true because she actually lived a long life, didn't die until 1979. But other stories say that it actually wasn't his daughter who died, but rather another little girl named Emma who fell down the elevator shaft. So who knows? There have been stories of multiple murders and suicides over the years. One rumor was that the North End Mafia got control of the building. They weren't like official owners and people have done research and like there's no sign that the Mafia owned the building. But apparently one of the owners was like a loan shark who had ties to the North End Mafia. So the rumor is that the Mafia were basically like the shadow owners of the building and they would use it as an execution site. Oh shit. Uh, Especially during the Great Depression. This was before it was sold to BU. Yeah. Then after 
after BU purchased it, there were supposed to have been a rash of student suicides up into the 1960s. Yeah. Emerson students later, when it became an Emerson dorm, would say they would see the ghosts of these students who had killed themselves roaming the halls or uh, haunting the rooms or hovering around like the elevator. So there seems to be something about the elevator in this building. Yeah. One confirmed suicide occurred on March 15th, 1908, when Charles Gate resident Westwood T. Windrum shot himself after suffering for months with insomnia, which is fascinating to me because you're talking about this like waking up, dead awake kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so he shot himself. He, he was suffering for months with insomnia. His wife was in the next room. Oh, God. Um, yeah. So other strange occurrences over the years include bursts of cold air sweeping through the rooms, alarms that had never been set suddenly going off, slamming doors, phantom music playing, yeah. toilets flushing on their own, TVs turning on and off on their own. Now there are other rumors about this building. And by the way, none of the, oh, pretty much none of this is confirmed. Sure. I think the only thing I could find that was like actually confirmed was this one suicide, this Charles Windrup. But other rumors were that, so one thing is like the building is designed kind of strange it's shaped like a C mm -hmm. so the inner apartments like you can't see them from the street but they yeah. can kind of look at each other across this courtyard which is just like a weird design yeah. you also can't see the top floor from the outside so it's rumored that this Putnam the architect was a member of a cult mm -hmm. and that the building was designed in such a way that and with the right materials to act as a magnet for the paranormal I was going to ask you that when you were describing the, the building material. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, again, who knows? Like I said, after BU sold the building, it became a tenement. So students were still living there, but they were living alongside like all these shadier people moving in. And back in the day, like when we were in Boston, Kenmore was a pretty high end area, Kenmore Square. Yeah. Um, <laughs> back in the day, it was like not. It was like yeah, kind and of. It wasn't, it wasn't even that long back in the day. It was like, mm -hmm. it was the night up in. It was still like an area of the rat skeller and it was called the right. war zone. Yeah, it was, a it was called the war zone. Exactly. Yeah. Or the com well, let's see, the combat zone was downtown. That was their like combat red light zone. district. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think the combat zone stretched all the way to Kenmore Square, from oh, what yeah. I understood. Yeah. Um, the only thing from what I can tell that's left of the actual combat zone is like one strip club that I went to with our friends Dave and Austin back in the day. Yeah, was um, it? I it was called the Glass Slipper. It was way downtown. Yeah, it's still it was, it was it was pretty scuzzy from what i remember we just we were like our whole thing was like we're gonna have a dirty boston experience so we went to the dog track up in revere and then um austin's girlfriend got real mad at us that we were at the dog track and she was like i'd be happier if you were at a strip club so at this point me and dave were really drunk we're like cool and we went to the strip club and then got yelled at by uh, one of the dancers because we weren't paying attention. Rude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, but anyway, so back in the day, though, that stretched all the way up to Kenmore. And like you said, not even like, like it had been sort of, I guess you would say gentrified, like of just a few years before we got there. Yeah, basically, um, I mean, they put in like Eastern Standard, which was our big high-end restaurant in that area. They put it in while we were there. And that was sort right. of the linchpin for the big transformation. Right. So at this time, this is in the 70s, you know, BU students and grad students in particular are still living in this uh, building, this Charles Gate, but other people are moving in. And so the rumor is that some of the people who moved in were actually Satanists and that there was a satanic cult operating out of the Charles Gate Hotel and that they're supposedly holding full-on satanic black masses and human sacrifices in the basement. Yeah, that's um, fun. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. 
Sure, sure, sure. And then after it became an Emerson dorm, it was already known to be this haunted place. So the Emerson students arrived and they started using Ouija boards to try to talk to the spirits. Ugh. God damn Which... it. What are we going to learn? Don't fucking use yeah. Ouija board. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it just, it just certainly didn't seem to have helped. Yeah. So then after that, they would see dark figures looming in their rooms, as well as a dark fog that would drift down the hallways. One student woke up and found he couldn't move. He saw black fog hovering over him and as he slowly regained his mobility the fog disappeared through the wall so one thing i forgot in my part of the story uh when i woke up screaming i don't remember thinking of it as a fog but when the bed stretched i remember it feeling really weirdly gloomy like i couldn't see very well yeah so that's the old charles gate now let me talk about the next place which was even closer to you mm-hmm. so let me um share my screen i think we can all agree that boston is haunted as fuck oh yeah okay so that's the charles gate all right so here's your apartment mm-hmm. this is uh it was called the Kilachan hall uh-huh. so it's literally across the street from your apartment. oh wow okay yeah right there it's like okay. right there yep. um so this place i remember I that vividly yeah it, it was kind of like on the back side so it was on uh, I guess back street is the street that ran mm-hmm. parallel to your street. Yep. Um, but it's basically like, yeah, it's, it's essentially right across the street. Kilachan Hall. It was it was a BU dorm. It was originally built in 1923 as a luxury apartment building and hotel, first called the Sheraton Apartment Hotel. And various famous people actually lived there at different times. So there was a Hollywood actress who lived there named Jeanette McDonald. And then Red Sox star and like Boston fucking legend Ted Williams mm-hmm. actually lived there. But one of its most famous residents was the Nobel Prize winning playwright Eugene O'Neill. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, people who don't know Eugene O'Neill, he wrote The Iceman Cometh, he wrote Long Day's Journey into Night, a bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff. Well, he moved here right towards the end of his life. Yeah. So he and his wife moved into what was at the time called the Shelton Hotel. It had changed hands a few uh, times. They moved into a fourth floor apartment in 1951. O'Neill, at this point, he'd been suffering like a lot of health problems over the years he had been an alcoholic for a long time he had struggled with depression for a long time by the time he moved into the shelton he developed tremors i don't think he was diagnosed but sort of like parkinson's disease made it impossible for him to write he tried to keep writing like using dictation but he just couldn't create that way so it had been like 10 years since he'd written anything his last play had been uh in 1943 okay so he died just two years after they moved in on november 27th 1953 as he was dying he supposedly whispered i knew it i knew it born in a hotel room and died in a hotel room and those were his last words So then BU bought the building the next year and turned it into what at the time was called Shelton Hall. Mm-hmm. It was a dorm for women. It later became co-ed in the 1970s. And in 2013, it was renamed Kilachand Hall. So when you were there, it was still probably called Shelton Hall. Yeah, it um, was. Right, yes. Yeah. So apparently on the fourth floor where Eugene O'Neill died, students over the years have talked about strange things like lights that are unexplicably dim. Mm-hmm the elevator that would stop on the fourth floor and open for no reason phantom door knocks again phantom music i couldn't find anything where anyone said that they saw eugene o'neill but the story is that eugene o'neill haunts kilachan hall so those like your apartment was literally sandwiched in between these two places and those were that was literally just me googling this morning to find things so like 
who knows what other fucking shit like you said boston is like one of the most haunted places probably in the country oh yeah just because it's so old i mean think about how much shit has gone down and you know the north end mob and i mean all right. the crazy things that have happened in boston yeah it's just naturally haunted as fuck yeah so, i mean i've got to imagine like a bunch of like south boston and charlestown and stuff have got to be haunted by like whitey bulger victims oh yeah yeah, yeah. big time <laughs> You know, it's funny. Uh, actually, they're talking about how since we're going through a major drought like right now, mm-hmm. a lot of the waterways in the area have dropped to record lows and we keep finding bodies. <laughs> yeah, I just I read uh, a friend of mine. Actually, Amelia's brother texted us an article about how that's happening all over the all over the place. And they keep finding bodies in Lake Powell, like Lake Powell is dropping. They're finding yeah. cars that went off the dam and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, in Boston, all those bodies, that's probably like a lot of white people. Vulture, <laughs> uh, people. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm. I'm not surprised that the area was haunted and has enough stories to it. I, I mean, I think. I think Kenmore Square has its own like funky energy to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not surprised. And specifically, those really quiet side streets are always a little creepy at various times of day. Not from right. like a criminal perspective, more from like a just supernatural weird vibe perspective. Boston is a city that you walk around and like Santa Fe is this way too. A lot of New Mexico is this way. So much like that. Oh my God. When you took us to Santa Fe, that Mm -hmm. is a, it's got its own really interesting energy to it. Yeah. Right. Well, you just feel the history there. You know, yeah. in Boston, absolutely you do. And, you know, Boston had, I remember, um, uh, fucking, what, what's the name of the big park in Boston? The Boston Common. I remember doing a ghost tour, them pointing out the hanging tree where they used to hang witches in Boston. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a thing we used to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that's, that's your crazy haunted apartment. It is. It is. And I also, I wanted to, if we have the time for it, share a story that freaked me out a fuck ton when I was growing up. Yeah. Not necessarily, you know, a supernatural story, but I think it's pretty jarring on its own. And so this is the weird thing. I actually, I haven't thought about this story. If I am, if I'm 41 now, I don't think I've thought about this story in easily like 35 years. Wow. No, that can't be right. Nope. Your math is wrong. Idiot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like 25 years. Yeah. I can't do math, but let's say (laughs) it happened. It happened when I was 11. And probably the last time I thought about this was probably when I was like uh, 13, 14. I just, Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it it happened and it happened pre-social media and it, Mm-hmm. Like it just, it happened at the time it was, you know, just things were very different. So anyway, I want to set the scene. I grew up in New Jersey, but I grew mm-hmm. up not in North Jersey, like fist pumping New- North Jersey. I grew up right. in South Jersey, which is extremely rural. And especially growing up in rural New Jersey in the 80s, I mean, there were pockets of New Jersey where you could drive, you could drive a long right. distance. Right, well, because you've got like the Pine Barrens and stuff. Exactly. Like, yep, so you've yeah. got Pine Barrens in the deep south, and then you have a huge section of southern New Jersey, which is just all farmland. So you right. could drive and drive and drive and just drive through cornfields and pockets of just very rural, isolated areas. And so right. that's where I grew up. Um, so I grew up Yeah, on, you grew up pretty close to Philadelphia. Yeah, we were probably about a half an hour drive to Philly. That was like right. our big closest city. Right. Um, So I grew up in this very, very rural part of New Jersey. And I mean, not even suburban, full rural. So I grew up on horse farm. 
So it was, mm-hmm. it was like four acres, but we were surrounded on all sides by just fields. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was four acres was our property, but I mean, a hundred acres in any direction was, you know, farmland. Right. So there really wasn't anything about around us. And growing up, we only had, I had two neighbors. One was next door, but our houses were separated by, you know, really big woods, a steep ravine, a creek. And then like mm-hmm. the following ravine and then their house was beyond the woods. So mm-hmm. they were not exactly like close neighbors. You could vaguely see their backlight at nighttime through the woods. That's okay. about as close as they get. All right. So then had a neighbor lived across the street. But when you say across the street in like rural area, yeah. there was an old, an old farm road that came up to my house. And then you turned onto my driveway. My driveway from the street was a quarter mile dirt road. Mm-hmm. So right. we live way far back. Um, and so you drive down like a, a wooded dirt road and eventually you get to the horse barn, which is on mm-hmm. one side of the property, cross to the other side of the property and you've got my house. And right. in the middle, sort of a, a big roundabout that we had set aside for parking and whatnot. Right. So <clears throat> anyway, so my mom and I had been, this is this is an area where it's so dead quiet at night. It's just crickets, you know, mm-hmm. and we lived in such an isolated area that any cars that drove by, I mean, you could probably count maybe 10 cars that drove by in the course of a day. Right. And you could always hear them coming from like two miles away because right. it was just so quiet. You'd be like, oh, we got a car coming, you know? Yeah. So it was dead, dead quiet. We had been at my grandmother's house for dinner. She lived two towns away. We got home late at night. I want to say it was probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. So we pulled into the driveway all the way up our big quarter mile long dirt road, Mm -hmm. get to the horse farm. You know, my mom says, okay, well, let's feed our horses real quick. So we turn on just some utility lights in the barn. They're not super bright, but enough Mm -hmm. that we can see green and the hay to feed the horses. And I mean, going back, it was just me and my mom at the time. My parents were separated and I was living with my mom. So just me and my mom getting home, big dark house, big dark barn. We're in the middle of nowhere. Um, So we, we turn on the barn utility lights. We're getting the horse food together and we hear a car coming down the road again, because it's so isolated any car that comes down our road you hear it and you notice it you're very aware of cars coming down our road right it's late night too so um we hear this car coming the reason we both park up is because of how fast it's coming down the road it's Mm -hmm. doing easily 80 90 miles an hour down this country road of ours wow okay i mean it's booking it and so my mom and i kind of stop and like i remember we're both sort of listening to this car and the worst part of what happened is that we could hear it slowing down when it got to our driveway Now I'm standing at the barn. My mom's standing behind me and we look down our driveway and the car slows down just enough to take the turn onto our dirt road. So Mm. now envision seeing headlights in front of you at the end of this quarter mile road and the tail of the car was going so fast that the taillights spun sideways so it's like fishtailing exactly they gun it up our driveway so for a quarter mile i mean it takes seconds for this car doing like 80 90 over like potholes and unpaved dirt road to get up right our driveway and i remember my mom and i were just so shocked by what we were seeing that we didn't do anything and we just didn't know what was what was coming right we just kind of stood there and this car drove into our driveway squealed to a stop before it was even stopped I remember there were about six people crammed into this car and it was an old, old convertible. Mm. So no top down, very old school, kind of junky convertible. There are six people in the car, three jump out before the car even stops moving. Oh shit. Two start walking towards us and one starts walking towards the house. Okay. Oh fuck. So my my mom and I are, we're still frozen there. It's just so out of the ordinary. We don't know what's happening. 
Right. And so, yes, we had a horse farm, but we also had a bunch of dogs. We always had a ton of dogs growing up. So we had Mm. like five dogs in this side yard off the side of my mom's house in a fenced in area. And the minute the dogs hear a car pull in, the dogs start barking their balls off. Right. Right. So as these people squeal in, three jump out, two are walking towards this one walking towards the house. The one walking towards the house gets about halfway to the house. The dogs start barking like crazy. The person turns around and goes, oh shit, they've got dogs. And all three, all three turn around, jump back in the car. The car K turns it and does 90 miles an hour back out the driveway. Oh fuck. And down the road. And that was it. That's the whole story. So now what was going to happen? Uh, nothing good nothing good was gonna happen no that's terrifying i don't you've never told me that before i've never told you that story and i'll be honest i don't think i've thought about that story since i was probably 15 years old and you never heard anything like happen to any neighbors or nothing nothing i mean we were literally just in a crazy isolated area and they there's yeah there's a lot of theories i've thought about like they came to our house knowing where they were going you know yeah I mean, yeah, that's the that's that. I mean, that's what's scary about it is it doesn't seem random. It didn't seem random. We didn't have a lot of streetlights. There are not really any other houses around. You had to drive through fields and fields. The next closest suburban development to our house is a good six, seven minute drive. Yeah. Did you say you guys had just gotten back from somewhere? We, from came, your grandmother's? Yeah, we came back from dinner at my grandmother's house and we were home for maybe 10 minutes, kind of putzing around the barn, getting things together. And this car just hightails it. Out I of mean, the I car. just, I wonder if someone followed you, but then why were they like, you know, so far back behind you? Like sure. if they had followed you, you would think they would have been like right on. Totally. And it was my mom driving and she drives like a grandmother, you know, right. I mean? <laughs> it's not, not hard to tell my mom. So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I wonder about that a lot. What was going to happen? I mean, that that's, that's genuinely terrifying because that, I mean, that they clearly have bad intentions. The fact, yeah, well, the, like, oh shit, they've got dogs. The dogs <laughs> wouldn't be a problem if they weren't planning to do something bad. That's you know. literally the only words that were spoken. My mom and wow. I were fucking was, terrified. Was it all men? Was it all dudes? No, it was a mix. I remember it was, huh. I want to say it was four guys and two girls. And the two girls and a guy stayed in the car. Three guys jumped out of the car. Wow. And they were younger. I want to say they were like um, maybe latish teens, early 20s. I mean, you could say it's like maybe they were just like kids looking to break in, like vandalize or whatever. But why would they like approach you? Like the two of them are coming I mean, towards you and your mom. Yeah. And I'm telling you, the car didn't even come to a full stop before they were out i get the impression that there was a plan it it sounds like it yeah and that is why i am terrified of isolation (laughs) yeah how old were you again 11 i was 11 yeah that's insane that's genuinely insane that's like we're we're gonna have to talk about this off air because now i'm fascinated (laughs) but like that that's that's really fucking scary yeah Yep, yeah. 100. And I I mean when I when I visited you and your dad, your dad was living more in kind of a sub- suburb area? Yeah, yeah, my my dad lived in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is way more right. suburb, suburban. He lived in like a cul-de-sac. I mean, that's like more that's that's a little more developed, but my mom uh we lived in Burlington, which especially back mm. in the 80s there was just fucking nothing in Burlington. Well, I just I remember I think it must have been when I was taking the bus back to Boston from your dad's place going through i mean i assumed it was like the pine barrens but you're right there's a stretch of southern new jersey where there's fucking nothing like yeah it's just woods and like you don't i mean i guess it's why they call it the garden state but it like you know everyone has the idea of like new jersey from like the sopranos or whatever but like you get kind of south of that it's a very different kind of state whole different world yeah whole different world in the south for sure yep yeah wow that's crazy i know 
I, yeah, I can't believe I, I'll be honest. I don't think I've even told my husband that story. I mean, it, yeah, you've never told me that. No, that I just would remember bubbled, that. It just bubbled up out of nowhere in like twilight sleep the other day. And I was like, Oh shit, I got to tell Scotty about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. I mean, of course the horror writer in me is like, Ooh, I could do something with that. <laughs> Take it, run with it. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. A story. All right. Well on that uh, terrifying note, I guess we should probably call it a day. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, like I said, you are one of my favorite people. One of my best friends for like almost 20 years now. I so. love you so much. Thank you for having on. I appreciate you and um, Amelia all back to you baby <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and we will be back um, I'm not sure I think Amelia is traveling like this week to come back to New Mexico so by the time the episode posts I think she'll have been back in town like for two days I'm not sure when our next episode will be she and I will converse and figure that out but yeah we're gonna be back to the weirdest thing uh regular order here shortly so but in the meantime stay weird stay curious and uh we will talk to you soon bye and outside two million drunk Bostonians are getting ready to sing Auld Lang sign out of tune Sit there in my easy chair, looking at the clouds, horns with celebration. I wonder if you're out there.